My name is Isaiah Mackler. I'm the associate pastor here while Pastor John and some of our other dear brothers and sisters are in Asia. So we'll get to uh, pray, pray for them uh, during our uh, second hour time of prayer, which I hope you'll all be able to stay for. Looking forward to that this morning. As we talk, as we talk about prayer, um, I want you to imagine for a second what it would be like for those in your care group to eavesdrop as you pray for them. You know, so as you're praying for those in your care group, imagine them eavesdropping on your prayers. How would they feel as they listened in? Would they hear you thanking God for them? Would they sense that they are a valuable part of your ministry? Would they be encouraged by the confidence that you express that God is working in their lives even as you pray? Would they sense your devotion to them, your affection for them? Or maybe would they walk away from eavesdropping in on your prayers, which is a weird thing to do, but let's just imagine that. Would they walk away feeling unnecessary, ashamed by how you're praying for them, uncared for? Would they even hear their names mentioned in your prayers? When we are being genuine, the way we pray reveals much about who we are, about what we strive for, what we trust in, what we care about, and how we think about others. Today, we're going to listen in how the Apostle Paul prayed for his dear friends, the Philippian church. Now, we're not going to be eavesdropping because Apostle Paul shared his prayers publicly both to encourage the, the Philippians. It's going to be a very encouraging prayer, but also he's going to do this to challenge them as well, to challenge them to pray like he did. It's not clearly said you are to pray this way, but I think that we're going to see it's implied. Now, at the point when Paul wrote wrote the book of Philippians, Paul had had approximately a 10-year-long relationship with the Philippian church. The church in Philippi had begun when God opened the heart of Lydia to the gospel. You know, that famous scene in Acts 16, as she was there uh, with some of the other God-fearing Gentiles praying because there wasn't enough Jews in the city to meet at, uh, to, to, to have their own synagogue. The book of Acts tells how God opened up Lydia's heart. Soon after, we know that the the Philippian jailer and others from his house believed and was added to the church. The church in Philippi, a city in northeast Greece, continued to flourish in the intervening years after Paul left. The Philippians supported Paul while he was in, in 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 Thessalonica. It's possible even that as we read through Acts that potentially Luke, one of Paul's traveling companions, spent seven years ministering to the church there in Philippi. Paul and Timothy had several trips there. Now, not long before this letter that Paul sent, the church in Philippi had sent money to Paul through, through Epaphroditus, excuse me. Not only did they send money through Epaphroditus, they also actually sent Epaphroditus himself, who had stayed behind to minister to Paul while Paul was in prison. He was most likely in Rome awaiting trial before Caesar. Now, Paul knew that it was time to write the Philippians a letter. 
Of course, he wanted to express appreciation for the financial support that they had just sent. But also, Epaphroditus and maybe others had brought some concerning reports of how things were going in Philippi. The city that he loved dearly had started uh, showing some cracks in the relationships with one another. There was the beginnings of disunity and rivalry from within the church. There was also danger from outside the church of false teaching and of, and of hostility. So the church was beginning to be threatened. The Philippian church at the same time was eager to hear news about how Paul's trial was advancing. What was going to happen to Paul? Even would he be executed? There's also this uh, a disturbing news that they had heard that Epaphroditus, who they had sent from Philippi to minister to Paul's needs there in Rome, had become sick. So they're concerned about how, pa- how Epaphroditus is doing, how this trial's going, and they're eager to hear more about how things are going for Paul. The relationship between Paul and Philippi had been a long, healthy, joy-filled relationship. As we see when Paul starts in Philippians 1.1, he doesn't assert his apostleship as he does in many letters. It's really from just a faithful gospel minister to other faithful gospel ministers. So let's listen in to... how to, let's listen in to hear how Paul shares his thanksgiving to God for them, to hear how God prays for them and really opens up uh, how he prays for them. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Philippians 1, verses 1 through 11. We're going to be focusing in this morning, verses 3 through 8. Philippians 1, 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Now, Lord God, we thank you, uh, Father, for how in your wisdom, You chose to preserve uh, Paul's repetition of how he prayed for the Philippian church, of what he prayed for them. And today, as we focus, why he prayed for them the way that he did with this this fervency and this joy and this thanksgiving. And Lord, I pray that uh, our relationship with one another would be strengthened as we look at Paul's prayer, that we would uh, really have the same motivation for prayer that Paul does in his prayers. Uh, prayers for the Philippian church. 
So please, Lord, we pray for ears that are open to hear your word. I pray, Father, for my wisdom as I uh, explain what your word says and help us to be uh, motivated, encouraged, and challenged uh, to pray with a joyful and fervent prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Now imagine how different this letter would have been if Paul had started with something like, well, Philippians, I have to be honest with you. I pray for you because you're on my prayer list. I would probably forget about you if you weren't there. I pray for you because you're on my list. It's mostly duty, but I do mention your name. That'd be a very different prayer, right? No, instead, I want to read again verses 3 and 4, and let's listen to Paul's fervency here. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Now, this is a different kind of thanksgiving that, than, than we sometimes offer, right? When we thank God, it's, a, it's often for the blessings that he's given, how he's provided for us and for our family and for our food. This Thanksgiving here is not just a uh, list of the personal blessings that Paul's received. Paul was thankful for what God had done in the Philippians' lives. His Thanksgiving wasn't self-centered. It was God-centered. His Thanksgiving was worship. Now look how Paul piles up the repetition in these first couple verses. In all my remembrance of you, always offering my prayer with joy in every prayer for you all. Paul's prayers were continual. Now, that doesn't mean it's nonstop prayer, but his prayers were frequent prayers. They were incessant prayers. The Philippians were never missing from Paul's consistent prayer life. They were an integral part of his prayers. His prayers were continual, but they were also inclusive prayers. We see the emphasis on all. For you all, in verse 4, in verse 7, about you all. Verse 8, for you all. It was essential for him to mention this as they were struggling with disunity and selfishness. But Paul's prayers were also joyful prayers. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you always offering my prayer with joy. Paul's language reveals not just what he's praying for them, but, and I think we would do the same thing. I'm praying this for you. I'm praying you'd be encouraged. I'm praying that God would strengthen you in the midst of your trials. But he just doesn't describe what he's praying for them. He does do that in verses 9 through 11. We'll look at that next week. But he reveals how he's praying for them. That he's praying for them thankfully, continually, inclusively, joyfully, and as I think we see here, fervently. What motivated Paul to pray with this passion? What was the fuel of his fervent prayer? Philippians 1, 3 through 8, Paul reveals why he's praying for them with such thankfulness, with fervency, with joy. He reveals what the fount of his fervent prayers is. In verses 3 through 8, we can see three reasons why Paul's praying for them so that they would have the same heart for one another, the kind of hearts which overflow in the same kind of thankful and fervent prayer. So that's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see three reasons for our hearts to overflow in thankful, fervent prayer for one another. Three reasons for our hearts to overflow in thankful, fervent prayer for one another. The first reason that we should pray this way, we should pray thankfully, joyfully, and fervently, just like Paul does here, because of your partnership in gospel ministry. 
We should pray this way because of your partnership in gospel ministry. This is how we should pray for one another because of our partnership in gospel ministry. Philippians 1, 5, Paul begins to explain. In verses 3 and 4, we saw how he prayed. Verse 5, why in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now? From the very beginning, from the first day, the Philippians had been eager to help Paul in his ministry. We see that even with Lydia in Acts 16. In Acts 16, 15, after the Lord opens her heart to the gospel, she and her household had been baptized. She urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. She insisted, You have to come and stay with me. I want to help you in your gospel ministry. We see the Philippian jailer do the same thing on the night that he was saved. In uh, Philippians 16, 34, And he brought them into his house and set food before them. Being saved meant that they were incorporating the apostle Paul and his co-workers into this gospel ministry. But it didn't stop there. Philippians 4, 15 and 16, we see, You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Paul left Philippi to go to Thessalonica afterwards. He received multiple offerings from Philippi. They gave multiple times to help him in his ministry there. They got what gospel partnership was. Philippians 4.18, Paul says, But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. This is after the most recent gift. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Again and again, the Philippian church had participated in Paul's ministry. They even sent Epaphroditus himself to serve, to serve Paul, to serve alongside Paul. They were always partnering with Paul, participating in the gospel from the first day until now. But that participation really shouldn't be limited to money only. Paul doesn't just say, well, you provided for my needs from the very first day. The Philippians hadn't just checked the commit to be a prayer partner box or have money automatically drafted from our bank account box. The reason for Paul's thankful, joyful prayer was more profound. It's your participation in the gospel. Participation, your fellowship in the gospel, your partnership in the gospel. Paul was saying to them, you're in Philippi and I'm here in Rome, but we have the same mission. We have the same message. We serve the same master. We're partners in the same job. He encouraged them in the book to live worthy of the gospel to strive together for the faith of the gospel. He talked about them holding fast the word of life. Talked about how they were praying for him even as he was praying for them. Philippians 1, 29-30 talks about how they were experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. They were going through the same struggle, the same prayers, the same ministry. They were more than just... Offering, I don't know, my notes are stapled together today. That, that, that's kind of different. Uh, so if you hear an occasional tear, I'm not ripping things out of my notes and definitely out of the Bible, just ripping my notes apart. The Philippians were more than donors to Paul's cause or supporters of his ministry. The Philippians and Paul were slaves of the same master. They were both exhausting themselves to bring as much glory to the master as possible. 
They were both playing on the same team. The Philippians weren't on the sidelines while Paul was out on the field. They weren't just cheerleaders. They were all in. They were on the field with Paul. Though they were fighting on different fronts, they were soldiers in the same war. They were stationed at different outposts. The Philippians were in Philippi. Paul was in Rome. The Philippians giving and their sending of of Epaphroditus was a strategic allocation of resources from one war front to another for the sake of the gospel. They were experiencing the same conflict, the same suffering for the same Christ. Because the Philippians were partners in this gospel endeavor, Paul's heart burst with thankfulness when he thought of them. I don't think it's just about money here. It's about partnership. And fervent prayer for one another is fueled by gospel partnership. They were soldiers in the same war and servants of the same master. When you pray for one another, are you fervently praying for your gospel partners? When you pray for one another, are you fervently praying for your gospel partners? So you could do this here. You can look to your right. Everyone look to their right. I guess that's left, but then look to your other right. There you go. Notice some people there. These are your gospel partners. These are your gospel partners in Cerritos, in Placentia, in Long Beach. These are your gospel partners in hospitals, at search engine providers, defense contractors, at barbershops, and in schools. These are your gospel partners. These are your gospel partners in homes with their children. These are your gospel partners for some of us in homes with our children. We have gospel partners in Asia, gospel partners in Czech, gospel partners in Malawi. We are all gospel partners together. We're not just cheerleaders of one another. We are cheerleaders, but we're partners. We're doing the same work. We have the same master. We're in the same war. Are you participating? Are you partnering in the gospel? Are you all in for God's glory? Are you sharing with others in your care group how they can pray for you as you're seeking to advance God's kingdom in your neighborhood and as in your workplace and in your family with lost family members? Are you engaging them in your gospel ministry? Are you being engaged in their gospel ministry? Are you in the battle for Orange, the battle for Anaheim? Are you in with me for the battle for my children? Am I in the battle with you for your children? Right? God's kingdom is advancing. We're gospel partners. And there is a sweetness as we do gospel ministry to another. This is not just Paul saying, I love how you guys pray for missionaries. And I know that we love our missionaries and it's good to be praying for our missionaries. But this is more about gospel partnership. And you pray differently for your gospel partners, for those that, that you're in the trenches with, right? It's different. I mean, and, 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 and I'm sure when Marcus and Amy pray for us, there's a sweetness as we faithfully send mission trips and as we give. But, I can only imagine that there's a special sweetness as they pray for us, particularly who are intentionally partnering in gospel ministry here. Right? 
is they know that we're doing the same work here. It's not just about us being their cheerleaders, us just giving to them, but us being partners alongside them. Here, yes, different places, but the same purpose for the same king. There's, there's a specialness in his prayer. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with the joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. They were all in for the gospel that characterized the Philippian church and it sweetened Paul's prayers for them. So is that descriptive of your prayers for one another? I mean, how exciting is it to go to group in this upcoming week and to hear how the gospel is advancing and how you can pray for one another? And maybe for some of you, it's like, I've been on the sidelines and I need to get in. So pray for an opportunity in this upcoming week to share the gospel. Like, won't that just bring a sweetness even in the way that we pray for one another if we know that we're all looking for that opportunity? We're all begging that opportunity for one another because we want to see Orange County one for the Lord Jesus? That Won't that unify our hearts together? That's, I think, why Paul prayed with this thankful, joyful, and fervent prayer is because of their gospel partnership, their gospel ministry alongside him. There's another reason why he gives here, though, for his prayer. We can pray thankfully, joyfully, and fervently also because of our confidence in God's purpose. Our confidence in God's purpose. And we see that in verse 6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I recently heard of a Target store in, in Hollywood, and maybe you've heard of it too. Uh, it's been stalled in construction since August of 2014 because of zoning rules and legal battle, and you can find the pictures online. And it's really just a giant husk of a store. Nearly three years later, it's no closer to being finished. Nobody knows what's going to happen to it. History is filled with unfinished works of art. You can think of Mozart's Requiem, which he didn't live long enough to finish, or Schubert's Unfinished Symphony. Orson Welles has an unfinished movie called The Other Side of the Wind. I'm sure it would have been a classic. Cole, uh, Samuel Coleridge's famous fo- uh, poem uh, of, uh, a coup of coup, Kublai Khan. Dickens has a famous novel called The Mystery of Edwin Drood, which was not finished. Only halfway through, you can imagine the disappointment when he died before that was done. There's a, a, a famous... Uh, or reports of a famous statue by Leonardo da Vinci. He was commissioned by the Duke of Milan to build a statue of a horse to honor his father. Da Vinci spent 12 years working on this statue. 12 years working on the statue. It was unveiled in, uh, in, in, 1492. He unveiled a 23-foot-tall clay model of the statue of a horse it was praised by many as one of the most beautiful works of art ever created. 
But before the mold of the horse could be cast in bronze, war broke out between France and Italy. The duke then decided to donate the 200,000 pounds of metal intended for the horse to the military, which used to build cannons. Da Vinci's massive horse statue was never completed, and it's said that the invading French archers later used his clay horse model for target practice. So one of the most beautiful works of art ever created was abandoned. When the day of Jesus Christ comes, there will be no unfinished works. The day of Christ Jesus is the day of Christ's triumphant return. Paul was confident that God would complete what he had begun in the lives of the Philippians. Now, just like God alone began the life of Adam, forming him out of dust and breathing life into his nostrils, God alone begins the new life of every believer. In Acts 16, 14, we know that that's what happened to Lydia, the first convert in Philippi. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. In Acts eleven eighteen, it talks about how God granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. We will not believe unless God grants us repentance, unless he opens our heart. We know that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, 4 through 9 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. This is the work that God himself does in his people. He makes them alive. He raises us up together with him and seats us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is the work that God has begun in the lives of his people. God is the one who gives life to the spiritually dead through his spirit. And God is the one who will perfect it on the day of Christ Jesus. Paul even brings up this perfecting work in Philippians 3, verse 20 to 21. He talks about how their citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble estate into com- humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. So God is going to transform us to the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So the same power that God used to exalt Christ as the ruler of the universe, bringing everything in subjection to him, is going to be utilized by God to transform us, to become like his son. 1 John 3, 2, looked forward to this. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it's not appeared as yet what we will be. We're not finished yet. We are unfinished target buildings we are sculptures of horses that will never, that not will never be made, but are currently unmade. We know, though, that when Jesus appears, we'll be like him because we will see him just as he is. When Christ returns, we will be transformed into the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. That job will be finished. Romans 8, 28 through 30, we've recently looked at this in our care groups. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, who he loved ahead of time, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That's where each of our salvation is going to be made like Jesus Christ, so that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brethren. 
And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God will glorify each one of us who are in Christ Jesus. God has no abandoned job sites. On the day of Christ, there'll be no half-written novels, no unfinished symphonies. On the day of Christ, there'll be only masterpieces. Not because of the material that God uses, but because of the model that God uses. Jesus Christ, whose image we're being transformed into. On the day of Christ, God's success rate in the lives of us who are truly saved will be 100%. God isn't an artist that has to start uh, with a pencil so he can get the sketch right, who uses his eraser a lot. He can start the work in us with permanent ink. He knows exactly who we'll be like. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul's confidence of God's finished work led him to pray passionately, not to passivity. It led him to fervency in prayer, not fatalism. God answers our prayers for him to work in the lives of others. God uses your prayers to work his will in the lives of others. Your prayers are the tools that God uses to accomplish his eternal purpose. Right? He's not just declared what's going to happen. He declares the means that are going to be used by him to make that happen. And the means that he's chosen to use are your prayers for one another. Your prayers are used by God to write his novel on the pages of our lives. Your prayers are used by God to chisel his son into the image of our hard rock. Your prayers are used by God to paint his masterpiece over our scribbles, right? Your prayers are the tools that God uses to see us transformed into the image of his son. Paul knew that. That's why he can say, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with the joy and my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And as you look again to the right and left, let's all go this way, whatever that is. I think that's your right. And then let's go this way. Look at people again. Okay, look, okay, how is God going to transform them? Through your prayers, right? That's exciting. God began the work in them. God will complete that work. He's going to finish it, and he's going to use your prayers for one another. So he's going to do this. Will your prayers be the one that he answers so that your brothers and sisters become like Jesus Christ? He's going to do it. So is it your prayers he's going to use? So think about your care group now. And as you think about how you pray for them, are you praying with that confidence? God, I know what you're going to do in Brian's life. I know what you're going to do in Jonathan's life. I know what you're going to do in Andrew's life. I know what you're going to do in Jeff's life. Like, that's exciting, right? You can get on board praying with that because you know what God's going to do. And now you get to participate in that by praying for them. By praying for their holiness 
and for them to fulfill God's roles in their workplaces and in their marriages and in their families and as sons and daughters. Right? It's thrilling to be part of that. So this, this is, we're seeing why Paul prays the way he does. He prays fervently and joyfully and thankfully because of the Philippians' partnership in his gospel ministry. Because of his confidence in God's purpose. And we should do the same thing. We should also pray fervently, joyfully, and thankfully because of our devotion to God's people. Because of our devotion to God's people. We see this in Philippians 1 verse 7. For it's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. The word for feel here is that Paul says, for it is right is only right for me to feel this way about you. It has a range of meaning, really, from feel to think. Uh, it's really a word that Paul uses many times in the book of Philippians. It includes feeling, but it's, it's feeling with commitment and conviction behind it. It's not kind of a feeling that comes and goes. It's a disposition we have. It's our being settled in our thoughts about people. It's our being intentional. It's our being committed in our perspective about them. It's not just, I feel this way about you today and tomorrow I'll probably feel differently about you. It's closer, this is the way I think about you. This is my commitment to you. Even this is my devotion to you. And we'll see this some other language of devotion here. Now Paul says that he prays this way with this fervency because it's right for me to feel this way about you all. It's right for me to feel this way about you all. It's appropriate. It's appropriate. It's fitting. It'd even be wrong not to pray this way. It's the right thing to do. Why? Well, he explains. Why is it the right way? Because I have you in my heart now, heart in English is just such a, you know, you think of Valentine's. It's just such an emotional word. I have you in my heart. You know, if I say that to you, like probably the only person I should say that to you is my wife, and we should hug afterwards, you know, and then, you know, okay. So I have you in my heart. But really for heart in Greek, it's more than that. It's the center of someone's will, of their decision-making. It does include emotions, but it's the whole control center you know, you can think of, uh, and, and, and some of you have seen the, the, uh, the, the, the Disney Pixar movie of uh, Inside Out. You know, how you have got the five little characters there, joy and anger and, you know, envy and whatever all the other ones are. Should have thought about that. My daughters know. But, uh, uh, but, they're, but they're, they're, they're kind of like trying to go for the control panel and all these five characters are like moving and making choices. That's kind of what our hearts are that Paul's talking about here. He says, because I have you in my heart. You're in my inner, you're in my thinking. You're in my feeling. You're in my will, my decision-making. I was kind of thinking about a good description. It starts off a little cheesy, 
your picture's in my locket, right? And, 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 and I don't know if you've ever seen those lockets that have someone's picture in there. But it's more than just kind of like, like oh, well, that's sweet, right? Because you think seriously about that person. You do things because of them. Or maybe you could say, your picture, pulsing to the Philippians, your picture is the frame that I have on my desk. It's why I'm at work. It's why I work hard. Or maybe your picture is my screensaver, right? When you open up your computer or your phone, it's that picture that you have. And it's more than just affection. It's, it's why I work hard and it's why I want to be who, who I am and why I want to be better. And it's why I do what I do. It's my motive. Now, of course, Paul had been involved in many uh, churches. He probably had a rotating screensaver, Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth for its good and bad days, for Ephesus. But so, 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 those, so those churches were in his heart. They motivated him. It's why, it's why he does what he did. He says, I have to be in prayer for you because you're in my heart. Your picture's in my locket. My wallet is full of photos of you. Now, why were they in Paul's heart? And really, Paul goes back again to gospel partnership. So I'm going to preach the first point again. No, I'm not going to. Uh, It's only right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. And there's that word partaker again, fellowship or partnership. It's even, it's, it's even more than, it's not just partnership, it's with partnership. He throws a with on the front end of it to emphasize it's with fellowship and with partners. You, you, we're, we're, we're in this together. Now, whether Paul was in chains or it says here, uh, both in my imprisonment, the word there is chains, it's quite possible, likely even, that Paul is sitting there chained to Roman guards while writing this. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, defense and, and confirmation are two, they're, they're kind of legal terms. It could have uh, pointed to Paul's actually, you know, his, his legal court proceedings, how he makes a defense of the gospel, how he confirms it, how he corroborates the gospel, but could have referred even broader to this is what a lot of Paul's ministry was. It was in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. But it wasn't just Paul alone. You have been partakers of grace with me. It's just so humbling to think of how Paul thinks about prison. How he thinks about defending the gospel. Confirming the gospel as what? Grace. You're partakers of grace with me. You're partners in grace with me. You've been partnering with me in this grace given to me by God to testify to his son, to make his name known. And that's what God's grace does. God's grace is not simply a saving grace. God's grace is an employing grace. God's grace is not simply an inheritance where you look, look at everything I've gotten. It's also job training and it's employment. The same grace that says, follow me, says, I will make you fishers of men. 
right? And we love that follow me part. We love all the blessings that we get in grace. But are we as eager to say, yes, when God saves me, he employs me in gospel partnership. I have a new purpose now. It is to be a fisher of men. That's grace. Like, that's not a burden, That's not God being mean to us. That's not God just saying, I'm going to have you do some really hard things. That's his grace to us. Paul said, you've enjoyed this same grace as I have, this gospel-empowered grace, this gospel-advancing grace. We serve the same king. All of God's movements toward us, including for Paul, prison, are movements of God's grace. Even the suffering we're going through is a movement of God's grace toward us. It's God's grace to you. We are partners together of this grace. All of it is of grace. You know, it's not 90% grace and 10% I'm going to torture them a little. It's all of grace. Now, I do think that Paul wants to emphasize he's not talking about just money. It's not, that's just not the only reason why he's thankful for them. It's not just a financial partnership. He says, for God is my witness. Now, I say that, you know, how many times do we do that? I, I'm even cautious about doing that. You know, Jesus talks about, you know, let, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Paul wants them to know for certain of what only God knows. Only God can testify to my affection for you, right? And only God can testify to your true affection for one another. Paul's saying this is not out of false motives. This is not about getting more uh, financial support from you. He says, for God is my witness. How I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. The affection there, it's a weird word, the bowels. The bowels, the intestines of Christ Jesus. It's the seat of our emotions. So Paul says, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Through union with Christ, and this is incredible, Paul claims to have Christ's own love for the Philippians. There's a great quote by Bengal. It's not Paul who lives within Paul, but Jesus Christ, which is why Paul is not moved by the bowels of Paul, but by the bowels of Jesus Christ. It's affection coming from Jesus Christ through Paul to the Philippian church. Do you have the affection of Christ for those around you this morning? It's time to do it one more time. Go ahead and look right. Maybe even linger there for a minute. Kind of look back. It won't hurt your neck. Okay? Go ahead and look left. It's okay if you, you mistakenly make some eye contact. Do you have the affection of Christ for those around you? An affection that is what 1 Corinthians 13 talks about. That does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account wrong suffered. You have that kind of affection for your brothers and sisters. An affection that bears all things, that believes all things, that hopes all things, that endures all things. 
An affection like Jesus Christ that gives himself for the good of others. That lays down his life for his sheep, for his friends. This is the affection that lays down our lives. It's a sacrificial affection. It is a loyal affection. It's the affection of a good shepherd. The affection of a brother. The affection of a friend. Do you have the affection of Jesus Christ for those around you? Or is it maybe an affection based on something less than the affection of Jesus Christ? Is it an affection based on just the kind things people have done for you? An affection based on common interest, similar hobbies, enjoying the same sports, maybe having a common culture? Is it an easily explainable affection or is it a supernatural affection? Christ has a supernatural affection for us. Is your supernatural affection only explained because of your union with Jesus Christ, because of your union with a good shepherd, because Christ is living in you and loving through you? How do we cultivate this love? You know, it was funny. I was, I was, I was thinking about that and started looking at 1 John, and, and, and I know you've gone through 1 John and care groups in the past. I would encourage you, read through 1 John. 1 John is all about cultivating this kind of affection. I think one thing in 1 John 2, 15 to 17 talks about this. 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Now, this is actually talking about the love of the Father. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh... The lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. And there's that idea there, and Thomas Chalmers calls this the expulsive power of a religious affection. Of religious affection. That as we love God, we lose a love for the things of this world. The lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. They are meaningless to us the more that we love the Father. And the more that we love the Father, guess what we're going to do? Love one another more. Like, if, 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 if you just kind of have some kind of interest in God, you know, like reading about his attributes, some theological curiosity, but don't love your brothers and sisters, that's not loving the Father. As you love the Father, and as they love the Father, you will be drawn closer to one another. That's why Paul loved the Philippians the way that he did, and why they loved him the way that they did, because of their mutual love for the Father. And that's what loving the Father will bring you to, is love for one another. We have this love as we abide with Christ, as we stay united with him. And how do we stay united with him? By obeying his commandments. If you keep my commandments, in John 15, 10, Jesus says, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. As we abide in Christ, as we keep his commandments, even his commandments to love for one another, even his commandments to be praying for one another, we're going to stay unified with Christ. And our love for one another is going to be Christ's love for one another. And what kind of prayers is that going to lead to? That's the kind of prayers you want to eavesdrop in on someone praying for, right? You want to hear them praying confident prayers for you. You want to hear them praying these affectionate, devoted prayers for you. You want to hear them praying these prayers that know that you are their gospel partner. Paul prays 
fervently and thankfully and joyfully because he's devoted to God's people. They're on his heart. The Philippians were on the lock screen of Paul's smartphone. And here's a crazy thought. Who would be on the lock screen of Jesus' smartphone? We would. Right? I love putting the picture of my daughters on my phone. Now, of course, Jesus would need a very big phone because there's a whole lot of us. But we're in his heart. And praise the Lord, he's eternal. He has unlimited affection for us. It's not enough uh, to read this prayer of Paul with all this, you know, emotion. It's not enough to read this prayer and say, oh, I wish I prayed like that. Paul's not proudly pointing to himself as some kind of prayer warrior. You know, how many of you have ever seen the uh, a little ceramics of praying hands? You know, have you guys ever Seen those? Okay. You know, he's not holding up his praying hands trophy. He doesn't have a t-shirt that says ultimate prayer warrior. He's not just boasting here, right? He's, he's revealing why he prays this way. And he's revealing why he prays this way because it's encouraged in the Philippians. But also, as we're going to see in this letter over the upcoming months, maybe years, you never know, is what I preach when John's not in the pulpit, that you're going to see that it's about their unity with one another. So as he's praying this way, he's motivating to them to pray this way as well. So that they would have the same prayer for one another. And so if we're going to pray like Paul, we're going to have to be like Paul. And we're going to have to follow Paul as he follows Christ. We're going to have to be partnering in gospel ministry with one another. This kind of fervent prayer is going to be the overflow of us being devoted to gospel ministry. Every single one of us. And our prayers for one another are going to be sweeter. And we're going to go to care group with an urgency. And it may just be, guys, it's been weeks since I've gotten to share the gospel with someone. Please be praying that the Lord opens up an opportunity. Don't feel bad if that's where you're starting. If you go to group and just say, I want to be a better gospel partner. Please pray that I could have a relationship with someone who doesn't know Jesus Christ. If we're going to pray like Paul prays here, we have to be confident in God's purposes. We have to be devoted to God's people. And if your prayers for the saints are dry, maybe shallow, maybe repetitive, maybe non-existent, maybe it's because you've retreated from the front lines of gospel ministry. Because you're hanging out on the sidelines instead of playing in the game. It's great to pray for the Denny's and the Lees and Gina Lim and the Cogburns. But I bet that they'd be even more excited to pray for us as we write letters to them saying, oh, wow, I got this opportunity. I got to share with my cousin, right? right? Their prayers are going to be sweeter for us because they see we're involved in the same struggle that they're having as we speak. If, you, if your prayers are not like this for the saints, is it because you've lost confidence in God's big plan, his purpose to complete what he started in the lives of those around you? Is it because something else has replaced God's people in your affection? Is there something bigger in your affection than God's people?
You know, you don't have to worry about God the Father being bigger in your affection than God's people. So you love him more. He will bring you to love others more. But what's distracting you? What's, what's filling your affections? What's going on that your union with Christ isn't producing in you the affections for one another that Christ has? So as we've looked around ourselves this morning, everyone you looked at is your partner in gospel ministry. God is in the process of saving people through them this week. They need your prayers. Every person you looked at this morning, God will fulfill his purpose for them. They will be transformed into the image of his son. Your prayers will be answered 100% guaranteed. So pray with fervency for them. And as you abide in Jesus Christ, as you obey his commands dependently and prayerfully, be devoted to one another in your prayer, in fervent prayer, in joyful prayer, in thankful prayer. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that we can call you by that name. And it is only through your Son, Jesus Christ, that we can come before you. Lord, we've seen something that feels very organic in Paul, that feels to be the overflow of his union with Christ, that's the overflow of his being engaged in gospel ministry with the Philippians. Lord, and we confess that sometimes that doesn't really come through in our prayers, Lord. That sometimes we are uh, very doubtful that you're, that you're going to be changing our brothers and sisters in Christ. Even maybe, in a sense, even betray them uh, through our discouragement, Lord, instead of holding firm to your promises. Lord, we confess, Father, that we can fall short of this gospel partnership with one another that we lose sight of your kingdom advancing, that we get so um, just sidetracked, maybe by the busyness of life, maybe by uh, competing affections, that we forget that we're engaged in something that, uh, a battle that you're going to win, Lord. As Paul talks about, uh, in Titus, about suffering all things for the sake of the elect. Lord, we know that you're saving people. We know that there's gospel ministry to be done. So, Father, we pray for one another now. We pray, Lord God, that you would uh, help us to be good gospel partners with one another, that we'd be all in, engaged in this ministry. We pray, Lord, confident that you who began a good work are going to bring it until the day of Christ Jesus. Uh, we thank you, Father, uh, that uh, even as we uh, think about the uh, uh, Furcos and our sister Blanche, Lord, that you have brought that to completion in her life. And that same uh, spirit that sealed her is guaranteeing that same work is going to be done in our lives. So help us to pray with that same kind of confidence with one another. Help us to pray with the same kind of affection for one another that we can say that we love one another the way that Jesus Christ loves them, that we love with his love. 
Father, I pray that you reinvigorate our prayers for one another, not just for our, our brothers and sisters in care groups, Lord, but for one another in, in this church as we even think about those who've gone into other churches, as we think about sister churches, as we think about our, our dear brothers and sisters uh, in, in, in Asia and in the Czech Republic and in Malawi. Lord, I pray, Father, that we would have fervent and joyful and thankful prayers, Lord, that we would work in prayer confident of what you're going to do through our prayers, bringing glory to your Son. Thank you, Father, that we can partner with you in this gospel ministry through prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.